Hello to everyone as you file in. Just want to let you know you are in the right place. This is today's webinar sponsored by JJ Keller. Going to allow some more people to get in and get settled and we'll get things going in about a minute from now. Hello once again to everyone. Want to let you know that you are in the right place. This is the Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Just allowing a little more time for everyone to file in and get settled. We'll get things going in about 30 seconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Got Chemicals? How to Comply with OSHA Standard on PSM, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start our presentation, but first, let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not necessarily mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. We'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Ray Shishti and Cindy Pauley. Ray serves as, as editor EHS at JJ Keller and joined the organization in 2017. Ray brings 15 years of EHS experience in various industries, including engineering, procurement and construction projects, fossil fuel power plants, gas distribution and transmission, electrical transmission, and retail. Cindy is editor EHS at JJ Keller as well. She brings 13 years of safety program development and management experience in multiple industries, and those include oil and gas, chemical, manufacturing, construction, and agricultural. Cindy develops a variety of easily understandable content and also provides regulatory insight for JJ Keller's customers and partners. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation today. Ray, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you and welcome everybody to our webcast today. Today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller's Consulting Services. At JJ Keller, we're experts in OSHA compliance, safety, and related best practices. With over 65 years in the business and 70 plus regulatory specialists on our team, we're well equipped to help protect your company from an OSHA inspection. Working with companies from coast to coast, our EHS consultants do offer significant value to businesses by identifying their risk areas, then delivering continuing oversight training, and lots of resources to help manage them more effectively. Again, welcome, everybody. Let's get a little bit into the agenda. So today we're going to be uh, taking a fairly detailed look at OSHA's Process Safety Management, or PSM, standard. And there's a lot of misconceptions about this. Uh, many companies think that they're covered um, when they aren't. Um, and a lot of companies are covered, but don't know that they are. So we're gonna to try to clear up um, as much confusion around that as we can, and really try to help you decide whether or not you're covered, uh, or more specifically, whether you have a covered process. Um, remember that you know OSHA published the PSM standard, and that's 1910.119, way back in 1992. And that was in response to several catastrophic chemical release incidents, and we'll go over those um, that occurred worldwide. Um, the PSM standard requires employers to implement safety programs 
and they need to be able to identify, evaluate, and control highly hazardous chemicals. And Cindy and I will go through what those are. Unlike some of OSHA's standards, which prescribe precisely what employers need to do, remember that the PSM standard is performance-based and outlines 14 management system elements for controlling those highly hazardous chemicals. And again, Cindy and I will be navigating you through those. Under this standard, employers have the flexibility to tailor their programs um, to the unique conditions of their facility. Um, and so that's, that's good news. Um, so if you're new to PSM, you have that ability to be able to tailor your program to your specifics. Um, again, we'll walk through those key definitions, um, what those highly hazardous chemicals are. We'll talk about covered processes. So that way you're able to better understand if your processes um, apply under the PSM standard. Uh, but before we dive in, it's important that you know that uh, today's webcast will provide a foundation to really begin addressing your workplace PSM issues. And you'll want to take the information that Cindy and I talk about today and again, apply it to your unique uh, situations to see if it is applicable and how it's applicable. All right, let's, um, I like this slide. Um, this kind of gives you a flavor of kind of what's, what's new on the horizon. Um, just a little bit of history and then we'll progress into kind of where this new rulemaking activity is. Um, but as I mentioned, um, the first publication of the PSM standard was way back in 1992. And, um, you know, there was an executive order that was signed by then President Obama in 2013, um, directing agencies um, to make improvements. And this specific order was um, improving chemical facility safety and security. And this executive order had directed agencies and OSHA um, to go ahead and modernize their policies, their regulations, and the standards to enhance safety and security in chemical facilities. Um, so that's what really um, started this whole rulemaking activity. Um, there was a particular incident um, way back in 2013. It was a nitrate explosion um, at a fertilizer storage facility in West Texas. Um, that incident and the lessons learned really promulgated the executive order to come out. And so what we've seen um, since uh, 2013 was, was really um, several different rulemaking activities. We saw um, requests for information come out from OSHA. So really just data mining and trying to figure out, you know, what needs to be changed, what's going on in the industry. There were several comment periods um, really between public stakeholders and small businesses to see how change might, might affect their operations. Really the last um, bits of activity um, have been centered around um, late last year, um, October timeframe, there was a stakeholder meeting. And the stakeholder meeting was originally supposed to occur in July, got, got pushed back to the fall. So in October, the stakeholders meeting generated a lot of comments. Um, what was discussed at the stakeholder meetings was 14 proposed changes that OSHA wants to make to the PSM standard. Um, the top six issues, discuss things like there was an exemption um, for the atmospheric storage tanks, um, which we'll talk about here today, um, expanding the scope um, really to now include oil and gas well drilling and, and servicing. You'll see that the current standard excludes that. And so OSHA wants to bring that industry back in as well as resume enforcement of oil and gas production facilities. Um, they're looking to expand PSM coverage and requirements for uh, reactive chemical hazards. They want to certainly expand the um, highly hazardous chemical list. So we'll be talking about a list in Appendix A that really lists all these threshold quantities. So OSHA is wanting to get that updated and expand it. And then also inclusion of things like dismantling and disposal of explosives. So those were the top six items that, you know, OSHA discussed in the stakeholder meeting of 14. Um, and they kind of left it there. Um, 
you know, we OSHA said that they intended to finish analyzing the comments that they received um, late last year, at least by fall of 2023. And so, uh, we would anticipate that, you know, after the fall um, to see some sort of a proposed rule um, and then more furthered rulemaking activity into 2024. Um, so that brings us up to speed on kind of what's happening um, with OSHA's rulemaking um, activities and the PSM standard. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the problem. Um, so really to understand the PSM standard, we actually have to go back a few decades, right? The problem with chemical hazards became a, a high profile in about the 1980s and 1990s as industries were utilizing large chemical processes. But the problem was that they didn't always have proper information about things like the reactive nature of the chemicals. And information about process equipment, alarms, um, you know, controls to detect releases, and more importantly, uh, mitigation measures if there was a release. So, you know, if something was detected and there was a chemical release, what needs to be done? So as a result, there were some terrible events um, that happened before that PSM standard was created by OSHA. And probably the most notable one was Bhopal, India, the pesticide plant disaster that occurred in 1984. In that event, water inadvertently entered a storage tank containing more than 80,000 pounds of methyl isocyanate, or MIC, and that reacts violently with water, right? So a subsequent uh, runaway reaction overheated the tank, and that resulted in a massive toxic gas release. Um, there was a dense, lethal cloud that had drifted over the city of Bhopal, uh, essentially exposing hundreds of thousands of people to this deadly MIC and other chemicals. And there was an estimated uh, 3,800 people who died immediately, and there was tens of thousands um, of community um, uh, people who were injured. And eventually thousands more died from toxic gas-related illnesses. Um, the release um, eventually killed tens of thousands of people. Um, other notable uh, disasters around the world at the time occurred in places like Texas, Ohio, Louisiana. Um, there was some very serious ones that didn't make national headlines, uh, but still had releases or milder explosions. So in 1991, um, OSHA issued the PSM standard. All right, so let's talk a bit about the solutions. So um, as I mentioned in the wake of Bhopal, um, Congress enacted new laws to increase chemical emergency preparedness and to require companies to develop process safety, risk management programs, as well as report their worst case release scenarios. So Congress also established what we call the Chemical Safety Board um, to independently investigate chemical accidents and make recommendations to prevent those types of catastrophic events I just mentioned. So from an OSHA lens, this is really carried out through the process safety management standard that we're talking about here today of those highly hazardous chemicals or HHCs, which you'll hear us talk about. And again, that standard is pegged at 1910-119. So it's a standard designed to prevent catastrophic chemical releases and explosions, bottom line. Um, it's the outcome along with the uh, EPA counterpart, which is basically the risk management program or RMP of the um, high profile disasters. So the standard has a lot of elements and it must be put in place if you have a covered process. Um, just a few are listed here, which we'll go into greater detail about later. Um, but with that, Cindy, how about we share with the group what it is the PSM is trying to prevent? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for that great introduction, too, and the history behind it, because it's very important as we progress in understanding why we're headed to where we're going with these 14 elements. But with process safety management, what we're trying to, for lack of a better phrase, is keep the chemicals in the pipe. So everybody's kind of heard that saying about once it's out of the toothpaste tube, you can't stick it back in. Well, these chemicals are no different. So 
What that means is preventing releases of highly hazardous substances that we don't want to get into our communities or in our workplaces. So in other words, focusing on preventing mechanical failures, things that might upset the process, such as heat, pressure, um, adding water, like we just talked about, Bhopal, things like that, and ensuring that there are proper operating procedures to reduce the risk of human error, as well as many other controls. Now, the, the OSHA PSM we just talked about centers around 14 steps that Ray, Ray mentioned, and we're going to go through each of these individually today. Uh, we don't want people to get too overpowered or think, wow, 14 different steps. So we want to take some time today um, to discuss each of those with you, leaving enough time at the end of our presentation for some questions if you have any. So prevention really is the goal, as we talked about. And the 14 OSHA elements are designed to keep catastrophic failures from happening. And kind of that's a key word when you're talking about PSM. They keep going back to catastrophic failures. To that end, it requires companies to know detailed information about their processes and their chemicals. It requires people that are knowledgeable about processes and subsequent hazards to be involved in operational safety with that ultimate goal of preventing catastrophic explosions, releases, or other events. Now, this ultimately requires companies to have several layers of control. So identifying the worst case scenarios and failures, then implementing controls to head them off. So, but then also implement safeguards to catch things you missed or things that may have changed along the way. For example, when replacing a part, um, you want if you put a new part on a change or a process, you want to make sure that you account for that in other similar processes and facilities, otherwise known as man management of change or MOC. And we'll hit a bit on that later as well. So let's shift gears into how PSM applies. There are essentially two ways a company can have a, quote, covered process under PSM. First, note the definition of process on the right of your screen. It's very broad. Mostly if you have chemicals on site in the quantities that are listed, you're covered. But what are those quantities and chemicals? A lot of people have that great question. PSM applies to companies that deal with any of more than 130 specific toxic and reactive chemicals in listed quantities. And this is in 1910-119 Appendix A. So it's the standard in Appendix A. And that contains a list. Hard for us, like Ray mentioned, to go through everybody's chemicals and everybody's processes. But again, if you have a question, just pop that in the Q&A and we'll hopefully help um, address those. Second, um, it also includes any category one flammable gas as defined in the HASCOM standard 1910-1200 paragraph C or a flammable liquid with a flash point below 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that means on site in one location and in a quantity of 10,000 pounds or more. There are a few exceptions to those things as well. We'll hit on a few of those. But again, if you have questions, just uh, reach out. Now, in the Appendix A listed criteria, the threshold quantities, which you'll often hear is called TQs for short, they range from 100 pounds for arsine as an example, all the way up to 15,000 pounds for things like ammonia solutions that are greater than 44%, as you'll see on the next slide. Now, don't get caught up in the mixtures. Don't want you to worry about that right now. But a letter of interpretation from OSHA explains that the threshold quantities in Appendix A apply to pure or what they call chemical grade chemicals, unless otherwise specified. For example, hydrogen peroxide, 52% by weight or greater. So it's gonna be that specific in the list. And again, PSM deals with things at a process level. The definition notably includes any activity involving the chemical, including use, storage, manufacturing, handling, or even movement. It even includes separate processes when an incident in one chemical vessel could impact another. In other words, you have to aggregate chemicals to determine thresholds or combine them. And again, we'll address that and talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Now let's take a look at a couple of examples because I know I've thrown a lot of numbers and everything at you right now. So you'll notice the quantity range that trips the threshold. For anhydrous ammonia, it's 10,000 pounds, but for chlorine, it's only 1,500 pounds. It wouldn't take but a couple of large cylinders to exceed the chlorine threshold quantity, as you can see here. One important fact about ammonia you should know, though, we won't have time to detail the appendices, as I mentioned, for the PSM standard. So you want to take a closer look at that following our web class and how that relates to your specific chemicals. However, we do want to point out that OSHA notes there are ent entries in Appendix A um, that are listed as anhydrous. 
It does not cover aqueous solutions or mixtures though. Anhydrous means without water. So by definition, Appendix A does not cover aqueous solutions or aqueous mixtures of chemicals that are specifically listed as anhydrous. Similarly, OSHA has interpreted Appendix A to mean that the PSM standard does not cover hydrogen chloride and or hydrogen fluoride in aqueous solutions or mixtures. So just something to pop in the back of your head for a little bit later. Now, another significant note is that for EPA's risk management program, which in essence runs parallel to the PSM standard, the threshold quantities are a bit different for some chemicals. For example, chlorine is 1,500 pounds for PSM, but it goes all the way up to 2,500 for RMP purposes. So um, your facilities and processes might fall in one of these, but not the other. So you'll wanna keep that in mind as well. Also, another big difference with RMP is that you have to register your plans with the EPA. You do not have to register your PSM program with OSHA, however. Now that we know what's included, Ray, can you cover some exclusions and exemptions within the PSM standard for us? Absolutely, good stuff. Um, all right, let's talk about some of these exclusions. Um, so obviously there's some exclusions, right? There's some industries that um, would be excluded from PSM, but first, you do not have to count the flammable liquids stored in atmospheric tanks uh, or transferred if kept below their boiling point without the benefit of chilling or refrigeration. Um, and that's something that OSHA is addressing in its rulemaking activities with this PSM standard. Um, they're supposed to come out with some clarification about this. Um, so that really brings up a question, right? Um, what does atmospheric tank mean? And so OSHA defines it as a storage tank, which has been designed to operate at pressures from atmospheric um, through 0.5 PSIGs or pounds per square inch gauge. Um, and this would include any types of things like containers, um, could also include a standard 55 gallon drum. Um, and so those are things to remember, um, certainly things to watch out for as um, OSHA continues to have some rulemaking activity around this. I always like to pop up um, some of the uh, court cases. I think this is um, certainly a notable one here um, that I like to bring up. It's the Mears decision. Um, this is a big one um, and, and this regards, uh, is regarding to exclusions, um, but there is this court case here. It, it dates back to uh, 1996. It's still in effect actually. Um, and this impacts how flammable liquids that are stored or transferred from those atmospheric tanks are covered by the standard. So basically the judge in this case had ruled that the PSM standard does not extend uh, to stored flammables in atmospheric tanks, even if they're connected to a process within the definition of the standard. Um, and there's been a lot of confusion about that. Um, and so this court case has been pretty instrumental in employers determining how the exclusion applies to them. So in layman's terms, you can have whatever quantity you desire of flammables in atmospheric tanks without triggering PSM, as long as the chemicals are just in storage and as long as they're not stored under pressure or chilled below their boiling point. So as a loophole, again, OSHA is trying to fix this. Um, you know, so far they haven't. We're hopeful that with this rulemaking activity um, that they'll be able to do that. Remember that if you have 10,000 pounds of a flammable liquid that meets this mere exclusion, it still has to be handled safely in accordance with uh, OSHA's flammable liquid standards. So you're not off the hook if the exclusion applies then you're gonna revert back to the flammable liquid standard, which is 1910-106. And so again, it may be exempt from PSM, but certainly may the 1910-106 uh, flammable liquid standard may apply. Also remember that the mere decision applies only to flammable liquids. It does not apply to any of the Appendix A listed chemicals that Cindy just reviewed with us. There's about 130 of them. There's lots of stuff that's been happening since 1992, a lot of blended chemicals, um, a lot of new chemicals out there. So we anticipate that this list will be um, certainly expanded. A little bit more about exemptions. Um, so a few uh, types of the facilities, 
that are exempt um, would be places like retail facilities, for example. So OSHA will typically not issue uh, PSM citation to retail facilities since they don't generally present the same degree of hazards as other PSM workplaces. You know, take take in comparison. You know, you go down to a commercial setting. You're going. You're in a store. You're purchasing chemicals. You know, the hazards are far different as compared to a manufacturing facility that's now manufacturing the same chemical. Um, so retail facilities are excluded. Oil and gas currently. Um, is excluded. So this is oil and gas well drilling or servicing operations. Here again, as I mentioned, OSHA is looking to um, include this industry um, in the updates to the PSM standard. Um, they're also looking at re uh, resuming inspections. And so that's that's pretty big. Um, you know, we've seen um, several key incidents happen across the industry um, in the last 10 years. And I think OSHA recognizes that there were a lot of lessons learned that need to be captured and put into the standards. There's that saying that, you know, these OSHA standards were written in blood. You know, unfortunately, something has happened and then the standards were either created or updated. And similarly here, OSHA is looking at capturing those lessons learned and being able to apply them. Um, and then the other one is gonna be normally unoccupied remote facilities, meaning employees are not permanently there um, this is some sort of a remote location. Um, they're only going there for periodic reasons, maybe for scheduled servicing. Maybe this is some sort of a pump station that is miles from the main establishment. Um, this would be another um, excluded facility. And uh, with that, Cindy, how about back to you? Yeah, Ray, I'd like to first kind of address a question that we get, which is whether or not small employers are exempt from PSM. And no, the answer is that they are not. In fact, one study estimates that employers with one to 25 employees are actually 45, 47 times more likely to have a release and 17 times more likely to suffer, suffer an injury per employee than facilities with 1,500 or more employees. So if you have a covered process, you're covered regardless of whether you have one worker or a thousand workers. So remember, it's about the process, not necessarily about the number of employees. So this is why smaller businesses with limited resource might consider alternatives to decrease um, their HHCs and their associated risk with those at their workplaces. One possible approach is reducing their HHC inventories to below the PSM threshold quantity by improving inventory control and accepting smaller limited quantity deliveries. Inventory reduction may help to reduce the consequences of a catastrophic incident because there's less to worry about, right? So when reduced inventory is not feasible though, the employer does have some other options. They can consider dispersing inventory among several on-site locations such that a release or an incident in one location won't necessarily cause a release in another. So it's that aggregate we were talking about a little bit earlier. Now, the same rules apply for industries. With a couple of the exceptions that we recently mentioned that Ray went over, such as retail, generally, if you have a covered process, you're covered no matter what the industry is. So, Ray, I think we can start to break down the parts of the PSM for folks. Yes, absolutely. Good stuff. Um, so let's start um, breaking down the different parts um, of the PSM standard. Um, so we've reviewed quite a bit of information so far. You should be thinking, um, you know, does PSM apply to me? Uh, we've given out some nuggets to help kind of help you decide that. But now let's take a deeper look at what the standard requires. And, you know, we've been mentioning that there's these 14 elements. You see them up here on the screen in the slide. Um, and so if you're covered under PSM, these are the 14 uh, uh, sections in the PSM standard. Um, and these all work together in many ways. And so um, when you uncover a deficiency in one of these sections, a lot of times it can involve deficiencies in other sections that require corrective action. Um, in fact, by design, they're designed to catch potential failures in the others. So for the rest of the presentation, um, Cindy and I are gonna go through these requirements to give you a better overview of what you should have in place to protect your workers, your company, and your peace of mind. 
All right, let's talk a bit about um, employee participation. Very important. Um, so the employee participation section is really intended to provide a cooperative environment. And you want to have that flow of information between management and employees, from employees back to management. Very important. The goal is really to eliminate or mitigate the consequences of catastrophic releases of those highly hazardous chemicals, or HHCs. And these provisions also require that the PSM information developed by the employer be, be made available to your employees. And so there's this constant exchanging of information and employee participation. Um, you wanna make sure that you don't forget to notify the unions as well. If you have a union um, employee base, um, they need to be notified as well. So by OSHA interpretation, these requirements also demand that an employer carefully consider and structure the plant's approach to employee involvement. Um, the plan of action section is intended to address, um, you know, really ensuring that the employer actively considers the appropriate method of employee participation. This is really cool. You don't see this in um, other standards. While um, it's suggested that, you know, there should be uh, obvious employee participation in this standard, it's actually spelled out. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, should see a poll up on your screen. Um, so if you're looking for assistance in this area, um, certainly with this PSM standard, remember that JJ Keller can certainly assess and improve those 14 elements that we're talking about with our process safety management services. Our expert consultants will work with you to develop and implement the 14 elements that comprise the process safety management of highly hazardous chemicals. Uh, 1910-119. So for more information, you should see a poll up on your screen. Select uh, your interest in the poll. And as a huge thank you, we're going to go ahead and email you our compliance brief, Understanding OSHA's Process Safety Management Standard. All right. Um, let's go ahead and uh, jump into process safety information, another really key, important um, section. So employers are going to be required to compile certain information, right? And these are going to be written process safety information, or PSI, about highly hazardous chemicals and processes um, that are covered under the PSM standard that Cindy and I are talking about. So complete and accurate compilation of this PSI is going to be critical to effectively implement all the other aspects of the PSM standard. You've got to know um, what chemicals you're dealing with and whether or not um, the threshold quantities are met, right? So PSI must include information concerning the hazards of the highly hazardous materials used. Um, you're going to be compiling things about how are they produced, certainly how are you storing them, transporting them, any processes, technologies that you have inside of your facility. So the PSI compiled um, by you uh, must include information also on toxicity, uh, permissible exposure limits, physical criteria, react, uh, reactivity data, a lot of the stuff that's going to be in the safety data sheets. Um, so facilities are required by OSHA's hazardous communication standard to maintain those safety data sheets. Very important. Um, process technology information, remember, must include a block or simplified process flow diagram, um, which is shown in Appendix B of the PSM standard. So block flow diagrams and process flow diagrams, they're going to be used to show the major process equipment in interconnecting process flow lines. And that's going to be important to have that information. Employees, uh, employers, remember, must also compile information on things like process chemistry. Um, establishing minimum intended inventory level. So what are your min, min maxes going to be? How much chemicals could you have in your facility being stored? You're going to be identifying safe upper and lower process limits beyond which could be considered upset conditions and an evaluation of the consequences of deviation. So what could happen and those what ifs are going to be important as well. Um, and again, this has to be done prior to the process hazard analysis. All right, um, let's talk about that process hazard analysis. So 
This is going to be an organized and very systematic effort um, to identify and analyze those significant uh, potential hazards that are going to be associated with processing and handling of the HHCs that we're discussing here. Um, so this process hazard analysis is going to be analyzing the hazards of the process um, discussions about potential causes and consequences if a fire happens, what happens if there's an explosion, if there's a release of toxic or flammable chemicals. It also has to make recommendations for additional safeguards to adequately control identified hazards or to mitigate their effects, or these may be generated by post-PHA evaluations of the team's findings. So safeguards may include inherently safer or passive approaches to hazardous controls, um, certainly things like new engineering controls that you may have in your facility, administrative controls, um, such as maybe you have new operating procedures or inventory control measures, all of those would be included. Um, so a comprehensive process hazard analysis must be performed by a team with expertise. And so you should, this is where you're going to be getting your subject matter experts together in things like your engineering and your process operations. They're going to be getting together to help compile this information. And so remember, don't do it in a silo. Remember that the Bhopal uh, catastrophe that I had talked about earlier, it was noted that a smaller incidence had occurred in the plant prior to that major one. And there had been leaks that were ongoing on numerous occasions, highlighting uh, a need for automatic leak detection that was never installed. Workers had even compiled an eye irritation or complained about it, um, which is a symptom of low levels of release that are occurring. And none of this was captured. Nothing was done about it. Um, so these warning, warnings weren't addressed. And this whole process hazard analysis uh, measure is looking to prevent all of that, to capture all of that good information that's going to help propel these 14 sections. So let's talk um, a bit more about operating procedures. Um, operating procedures um, should be developed to cover all conditions of the process. And so these are your administrative controls. And you're going to be talking about those normal operations, uh, shutdowns, pre-startup, and so on. And you must train uh, any of your employees that are going to be um, impacted about these procedures, and you need to revise the procedures as is necessary. So think of it um, just as a huge lockout process, if you will. Um, and with that, let's pass it back to Cindy to talk a bit about training. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, training is one of my favorite topics, so let's have at it. So employers must provide both initial and refresher training to every employee that's involved in operating a PSM covered process. So if they're involved in the process, they need to be involved in training. And it must cover process specific safety and health hazards, plus operating procedures, safe work practices, and emergency shutdown procedures. The last thing you wanna do is wait until you have to put your PSM to test before your employees are trained on what to do. So that could in itself be catastrophic. So you'll want to teach it and you want to practice it. Now, the level of training may vary from each employee. So for example, those that work in an area or operate the equipment will receive more, expensive, more extensive training than say visitors or other non-operational personnel who are maybe just in the general area or who would just typically require more awareness training. Employers must also train contractors and temporary employees on known potential fire, explosion, or toxic release hazards that are associated with their work and the processes that they're around. So additional training in subjects such as emergency evacuation and response, uh, routine and non-routine work authorization activities, and other areas pertinent to process safety and health should be covered by an employer's training program. So you wanna make sure that you cover all of those things. And training must also be conducted in compliance with the hazard communication standard. So make sure you're including that so that it helps employees become more knowledgeable about the properties of your chemicals, um, the ones that might be released or the ones that they're working around. And you don't wanna be afraid to use your process flow diagrams as a training tool. That's one of the best things that you can do um, for training is to walk them right through the process or even take them on a field trip to the process area so that they better understand the overall goal of what's going on with PSM. So all part of the training. 
And of course, one of my favorite sayings from a friend of mine who was a trainer for my OSHA is, and maybe you've heard it many, many times, is that which was not documented was not done. So it seems to be popular here in Michigan with my OSHA. So you want to make sure training program documentation clearly identifies the employees that were trained, the date of the training, and all the topics that were covered within the training. One non-mandatory best practice to consider too is determine, to determine clear and measurable learning goals or objectives before the training even begins. So you want to allow your end goals to guide you through the training and have your workers enhance your training plan. They know a lot about the day-to-day -day specifics that others maybe don't, including the instructors, so they're a valuable resource to enhancing your training. And training must be such that employees involved in operating a covered process have received and understand, make sure they understand it, um, everything that's required by the PSM standard. So basically what we're covering here today. Now the employer needs to identify how they ensure competence and understanding of the material too. So you can't just put it out there. We wanna make sure that you can show that they are competent in understanding the material that you provided. And usually the most common form of doing that is through documented quizzes or practicums or things like that. So it's really up to you and your workers and, and what works best for your facility. Now, employers should periodically evaluate your training program. You want to make sure that the necessary skills, knowledge, and procedures are properly understood and implemented like we just talked about. But these evaluations can also help determine the amount of training your employees absorbed and whether the desired results were met. And if after the evaluation, it appears that trainees are not at the level that you expect for competency, you'll want to revisit that training using input from both the trainees and the instructors um, maybe give some retraining or perhaps offer more frequent refresher training sessions until um, any deficiencies or gaps are resolved. If there's a language barrier, you want to make sure that the language known um, to the trainees is used. That's usually best. Um, again, you just want to make sure that they understand the material that's being provided. That's what's most important. Now, if you bring in a contractor to work on or near your processes, certain requirements must also be met. Primarily, this is training and an exchange of information about each other's work processes and procedures. You all have to be on the same page or, again, catastrophic results can happen. So you need to evaluate the contractor's safety and performance programs and inform them of the potential hazards regarding the work to be performed on your facilities. These requirements don't apply to contractors providing incidental services, of course, which don't influence the process safety, such as maybe janitorial work or people delivering food or providing food services, laundry, supply services, things like that. So they probably wouldn't need to be involved unless they're somehow near the processes that you're concerned about. So um, with that, Ray, would you like to start a little bit about pre-startups? Yes, absolutely. Really good information. Um... So yes, let's talk about startups, uh, pre-startups. Um, so a pre-startup safety review, this is basically, basically going to confirm that really before the introduction of any HHC to a process in your facility, that there's certain things that are done, right? So construction and equipment is going to meet certain design requirements. There's going to be safety, operating, maintenance, emergency procedures are in place. And then as Cindy just mentioned, training, right? Um, if you have a new facility or process, um, a process hazard analysis that I had talked about earlier is going to have to include all of those new um, processes, equipment, and procedures. So mechanical in integrity, let's talk a bit about that. And this is going to require employers to implement a rigorous and systematic written procedure or those administrative controls and really ensuring that the critical process equipment are um, have a, a variables, things like it's properly designed, it's tested, inspected, um, what's the repair gonna look like if it breaks down and how are we gonna maintain it? So mechanical integrity programs are gonna have to address pressure vessels, um, certainly storage tanks, your piping systems, pumps, any sort of relief and vent systems that you might have, even your emergency shutdown system, don't forget that. So while large chemical manufacturing facilities and petroleum refineries sometimes have hundreds or even thousands of such um, components, small businesses with PSM covered processes typically have a lot less equipment to maintain, making compliance a whole lot easier. 
So for some small businesses, this mechanical integrity section uh, may not uh, appear as daunting um, as it would for a larger facility. So as you can imagine, right, mechanical integrity is uh, most resource intensive, right? So you're going to be getting all of your resources and your SMEs together to really to tackle this section, especially if you have a big facility. And this is because it includes going through all those things, right? The inspections, the testing, the repairs, controlling even spare parts and materials. Um, employers who don't have a mechanical integrity program are gonna first need to identify all the critical equipment that's part of the covered process, very important. And employers should also consider including loss of containment mitigation equipment, fire protection systems um, as are applicable. Um, in many cases, the equipment that is part of this MI program will have inspection and testing recommendations, and those recommendations are really going to be coming from the manufacturer. Um, remember also that if equipment is, uh, uh, if it's not covered under the MI-related manufacturer recommendations, then employers should look for applicable codes or standards, uh, perhaps best industry practices for guidance. Um, you know, certainly inspections and tests must follow recognized and generally accepted good engineering practices. Um, applicable codes and standards could be something like the American Society for Testing and Materials, um, or perhaps the Amer um, standards from the American Petroleum Institute. So those are some examples that you can fall back on, again, if your manufacturer is not already providing that good information. Hot work permits are gonna be critical as well. Um, you know, obviously if you're not performing hot work um, around a covered process, um, it could be, uh, or if you are performing hot work, it can be very, very dangerous. Um, you wanna make sure that you have containment for things like spark transfer of energy. So that way we can avoid any sort of reaction or fire with your HHCs. Uh, Cindy, what do you have for us on your favorite topic, that management of change? It is one of my favorites, and it's a great lead in coming off of mechanical integrity because that's a lot of what management of change involves. So um, management of change is really no different with PSM than with any other work process or procedure. So very important to remember that is what we're saying here now is something that you can take to other processes and should take that. Uh, basically, when equipment is determined to be deficient, a management of change or better known as MOC, um, should be established and implemented prior to continuing operation of the deficient equipment outside of the established operating limits, not just for this process, but for others as well. The MOC procedure must include a determination of the safety and health impacts of continued operation of the deficient equipment, modifications to operating procedures, and the time period for the change. Keep in mind, this is a tool that should be used for other similar processes, like I mentioned. Um, and procedures as well as equipment. So in other words, use this as a learning tool for other worksite opportunities. Um, employees involved in operating a process or with maintenance of the processes must be tra trained on changes that have taken place or will be implemented. This is very important that they understand what was changed and why. And as with any other training, documentation is your best friend. So keep that in mind. Now, there's really no discussion about safe work practices or procedures that can be had without also discussing incident investigations, of course. So as you know, this is the process of identifying um, the underlying causes of incidents, the root causes, associated causes that go with root causes, plus implementing procedures to prevent similar events from occurring. That's really the whole purpose of an, of an incident investigation, keep this from happening again. So two important points are, Underlying causes, not just surfaced or just one root cause. Very rarely is there only one root cause to something that would be related to um, PSM incidents. And number two is the intent is to learn and avoid a repeat, not to place blame on any one person or any process, anything like that. So always trying to learn and avoid a repeat. Now OSHA has high expectations and wants employers to develop in-house capabilities to investigate incidents that occur or could occur at their facilities. So they actually want you thinking ahead as well. So incidents that are prime for an investigation are events that resulted in 
or could have resulted in catastrophic releases of hazardous materials. Near misses, or what I prefer to call them near hits, are extremely valuable investigatory tools, so use those to your advantage. Investigation should be completed as promptly as possible, and really no later than 48 hours following the incident or near hit, with a detailed report prepared at the conclusion of the investigations. And reports really should be retained for five years, so keep that in mind as well. You want to keep that stuff so you can look back on it. Now, often closely related to incident investigations are emergency action plans and response. Obviously, you need to plan for an emergency response to anything that slips through your preemptive PSM plan. This can be done in a variety of ways, but also includes determining what your response will be and train, and here's the kicker, and drill on the response plan. A lot of people forget to have drills. It's very important to do that. For example, if your employees are to evacuate, train on that and have procedures for notifying a third party. If your employees can clean up some spills or respond to some releases, you need to train to that level of expected response. And include your local response teams in your planning and your drills. You'll thank me later for that. And often that's a free service and they wanna get involved. So as a 911 dispatcher in my past life, uh, I know this is something that the response teams appreciated being involved in their local community. So reach out to them and use them to your advantage. Now, as far as compliance audits go, uh, the PSM standard also requires you to conduct an audit at least once every three years to ensure you're complying with the standard. You can do it more often, obviously, that's preferred, but at least three years. This is an in-house audit, so you can certainly ut utilize outside sources, but it's not required. And the audit, again, surprise, surprise, must be documented. And you also want to make sure that deficiencies are corrected in a timely manner. So if you, in doing your audit, you see something wrong, make sure you get that corrected and follow your MOC process on those. And you want to ensure your audits include workers that are knowledgeable in the process and make sure you retain your two most recent compliance audit reports, just in case you're asked to offer them for re regulatory review or some other purpose. Now, Ray, did you want to talk a little bit about trade secrets and take us home from there? Absolutely. Yeah. Make sure that you're including your trade secrets. And, you know, this is all uh, always a sore topic, but, you know, you have to consider those trade secrets when you're making evaluation of your program. Um, our recommendation is to get into confidentiality agreements and you can basically forbid the disclosures of those trade secrets, but don't forget to include the hazards, the processes, the procedures that are found in those trade secrets. So we certainly covered quite a bit of information today, lots of great stuff, Cindy and I. So hopefully you've gained a better understanding of what the PSM standard is and how it applies to you. And if you aren't sure if how you're covered, one place to start would be determining if you exceed those threshold quantities um, that Cindy was talking about earlier. All right, we're going to have another poll up here. So before we get into our Q&A session, I'd like to once again mention the sponsor of today's event, JJ Keller, uh, OSHA Consulting Services. Our workplace safety consulting team is committed to helping companies ensure compliance and build that competitive advantage. Um, if you're interested in learning more about JJ Keller's uh, consulting services, and you'd um, like to receive that free process safety management compliance brief, please make that selection up on your screen. And while you're making those selections, we're gonna pitch it back to Kevin for our Q&A session. Well, excellent, great job, Ray and Cindy. Thanks so much for sharing your insights and expertise. As you indicate, you certainly covered and covered a lot of ground. Um, before we do start the Q&A, just wanna let everyone know about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after the webinar, and we, we appreciate your input. It's very important as we improve our future webcasts. Once more, if you'd like to ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button to submit. If we don't get to the question this afternoon, again, I'll answer questions. We'll be forwarded along to our speakers. With that, we will get to those questions. Uh, to start, do covered establishments under PSM have to register with OSHA? So you do not have to register. Um, there are some other... Um, agencies that do require registration, OSHA does not, but remember that OSHA does require you to certify. So you do need to make some certifications about your PSM program. You know, Cindy had talked about um, every three years, those certifications need to happen. So 
So if you are under inspection or there's any sort of enforcement activity, you'll want to be able to produce those certifications. OSHA will ask um, for your reports and things like that if there's any sort of inquiry. Next one, is there a minimum distance to be considered as remote? Yeah, I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, so actually, there's an OSHA letter of interpretation about this, which means that many, many people have asked that same question. So great question there. And what they actually say is processes which are not in close proximity are considered to be at a remote distance. I know that's very gray, isn't it? Um, so what they're saying there is they give an example with respect to um, liquid HHCs, especially where a dike built around a liquid storage vessel to fully contain release materials is used to prevent interaction with another vessel. That would be considered a physical barrier. So would um, the two vessels would be considered remote from each other. So it's really something that has to be individually addressed as far as distance, the amount of quantity. So remote is, I wish I could say a black and white answer here. Remote is really going to depend on the circumstances. That would be a really good time if you have a question about that to uh, bring in a consultant to help evaluate those different characteristics. So sorry, it's not as black and white as I would like, but um, that's kind of how they define remote. So if you would like to look up that letter of interpretation, it's um, February 15th, 1994 is that LOI. Thank you. On to the next one. Is it possible to have SDS on demand by phone or is it required to have a physical location in the facility? So I'll go ahead and take that one as well because I love working with safety data sheets. Uh, the short answer is yes and no. So you can have safety data sheets available electronically. However, you also want to have those in hard copy form should there not, should there be some sort of an interruption in your um, electronic ability to provide a safety data sheet. So OSHA requires you to be able to provide the material. So usually they want a backup plan essentially. So you do probably want to have access to those physically as well as electronically. Are the quantities of different Appendix A listed HHCs when stored in close proximity considered aggregate for the purpose of determining threshold, uh, I'm sorry, threshold quantity? Yeah, so, you know, those 130 HHCs that are listed in Appendix A, each of those are going to have a different uh, threshold quantity and they're considered individually. Um, so you should refer to that appendix and those TQs, as uh, Cindy pointed out, for short. Um, and so if you have two different um, chemicals uh, within proximity of each other, each of them will have a separate TQ, and you'll want to take that into consideration. Who should lead the PHA effort in an organization? So really the... You could have anyone lead it technically, but the person leading as well as members of the team really need to have expertise in engineering and process operations. So that's the part that's most important. Somebody with knowledge and experience with the chemicals you're talking about, um, engineering processes, process operations, as long as the person is knowledgeable in that, they would be um, qualified. OSHA doesn't really say you have to have this person, this person, or anything like that lead. Um, Ray, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but as far as um, my understanding of OSHA's requirements is they need expertise in those following areas. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Cindy. Definitely need to have expertise. This particular standard doesn't get too specific because, again, it's a performance standard, um, but you certainly want to have that subject matter expert who's able to um, have very good familiarity with those 14 elements that we've been discussing. So spot on, Cindy. Do the management of change procedures apply to items such as gaskets? Absolutely, they do. So in fact, the smaller parts seem to probably cause the most problems in most situations when it comes to uh, toxic and hazardous materials. So absolutely, anytime there's a change, especially if it has something to do with safety, but of course, if it has something to do with operations, you want to have efficient operations as well. But when it comes to safety, if there's a change in a part, that means there was probably a problem somewhere with that part. If there's a problem with that part on this machine and this process, it's probably gonna be a, a problem in another one. So absolutely you'll wanna include stuff like gaskets in an MOC process. Good question. All righty, no, quite a few good questions, but we are unfortunately running out of time. Um, as we do close, anything uh, for you, Ray and Cindy, anything left unsaid or that you might 
like attendees to know as we close today? Yeah, just, um, you know, definitely lots of great questions. You're going to have lots of questions as you develop your plan. So certainly JJ Keller is available to help you with your assessments and implementing your PSM standards. So let us know how we can help. All righty. Well, thank you. No, and, and as everyone, you can see those, there are ways and um, to, to contact JJ Keller, as, as Ray said. So once more, we thank you. And, and unfortunately, we have run out of time. Sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions. But again, those unanswered ones will be forwarded along to Ray and Cindy. Once more, we hope you take the time to fill out that forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Ray Shishti, Cindy Pauly, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.